today was, I don't even think arguably, today was inarguably, and I wasn't in the courtroom, but following this, the most dramatic day in the Tim Bosma trial so far. Uh, defendant, Co-defendant Mark Smitch was testifying on his own behalf, and boy, uh, from everything I heard, the courtroom, it was, it, I don't know if it's a, an appropriate word to say electric, but boy, it was... Um, it was something in there. Alex Pearson, of course, has been covering this trial now for, I, I believe, nine years for 900 CHML. Um, or, sorry, only four months. Alex, it only seems like nine years, I'm sure, to you at this point doing this every day. But thanks for being here again. Thanks for doing another spot this evening. Yeah, Scott, my pleasure. I mean, I, and I, I apologize for not getting back to you sooner, but it was just that kind of day in court. No right? problem. I understand I completely. So fast and furious with the information we were getting, and it was so emotional and so, I mean, stressful is one word to use, but it was a really, um, I think, angst-ridden day for everybody. So it was just, one, you know, somewhat overwhelming. Well, here's what I want to do. Uh, I want, in just a second, I'm going to do what I did with Molly Hayes last week, and basically I am going to stop talking, and I'm going to let you basically lay out the narrative of what happened. So you, you were there. You can tell the story. And this, Molly on Thursday outlined the Crown's case. She walked us through the narrative of what the mm-hmm. Crown believed happened. In just a minute, I want you to do that from what Mark Smitch says happened. This is the story sure. of everything that happened as if he was telling it. But before we get there, just first before we do, this is very unusual what happened today because... By and large, I, I would argue that 80%, probably maybe higher than that, of murder cases, the defendant does not take the stand because the risks of what might happen to him in cross or her in cross-examination of just being shredded is so high. Were you, having watched this all the way along, were you at all surprised that last week they announced that he was probably going to do this and then today when he marched up onto the stand, were you surprised that he actually did this? I am surprised that he actually was the one to take the lead and testify. I certainly think most of us thought that it would be Dylan Millard who would take the stand and then push because he went up. Then, of course, Mark Smith would be forced to go up on the stand. I've seen many, many cases where the accused does get, you know, they do get on the stand and uh, um, they do tell their side of the event because as, you know, Tom Dungy, the lawyer in this, once again reminded the jury, the onus is on the Crown. They must prove guilt. It's not my job to prove innocent. This man here is innocent until proven otherwise. So you're going to hear his version of events, his story of the events that happened on May 6th and May 7th, and you will decide if you believe him. So that's how it was set up. And, uh, I mean, it was it's always very tense when the accused gets up because you're going to hear details, whether you believe them or not, whether the jury buys the story or not, you're going to hear details that no other witness can tell you because they were not there. Right. And so we've heard tons of really jaw-dropping evidence from a number of witnesses who have left us aghast as to what they knew, what version of events that they had come out with. But there have been so many questions uh, people have wanted to know about Tim Bosma, his final moments, you know, how long it was before he was shot and killed. And these are the details we're starting to learn. And it was breathtaking. Mary Bosma, who is in that court every day, of course, she is Tim Bosma's mother, uh, you know, she left before he started getting into the events of May 6th. So he went through just, you know, illustrating his friendship with Dylan Millard, how they came to meet. You know, he was a drug dealer. Dylan Millard was buying drugs for him. They hung out casually. It developed into a very, very close relationship from there. So that's how it started. 
And then as we got to May 6th, Mary Bosma stood up, you know, tears streaking her down her face. She left the, the courtroom. Several of the Bosma family followed her. Charlene Bosma and Hank Bosma stayed in the court um, and, and listened as Mark really kind of took us on a play-by-play of what happened as soon as they pulled up in the Yukon to this Ann Castro address three years ago last Friday. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is I am not, you're not going to hear me for the next few minutes. <laughs> I'm going to leave it with you. Again, understanding that this is only Mark Smitch's version of the story that has not been cross-examined, that we don't have any idea what is true or not true, just what was presented in court today. Mm-hmm. Alex, take the next five or six minutes and give us the narrative. Tell us his story that he laid out of what happened that night. So according to Mark Smitch, they pulled up to the Bosma address in Ancaster on the Monday evening. As far as he was concerned, they were going to check out a truck. It was their goal to steal the truck. They had already gone on a test drive the day before with Igor Tumanenko, the Russian Jew, which would be an aborted mission because of whatever reasons. Mark Smitch didn't explain why they didn't steal his truck, but we do know that he was a member of the IDF, and it was a likely reason that they got spooked away from doing it. Nonetheless, on May 6th, they decided they would be going to Tim Bosma's house. They pulled up in the Yukon and left it parked just outside of view of the driveway uh, of the Bosma household, and they would walk up the driveway. It was almost dark, said Smitch, and so... All along, they had been telling a story, and witness testimony reveals that they had been dropped off, according to them, by a friend who was waiting in town at a local Tim Hortons for them to go on this test drive, then he would come get them. As these two men walk up the driveway, Mark says they were greeted by a woman and a man. That would be Charlene Bosma and Wayne DeBoer. Wayne DeBoer was renting a basement apartment. Also friends of the family. They were having a cigarette. They greeted each other. Tim Bosma was not seen quite yet. He was obviously waiting for these men to show up. They had been late. He was a little bit uh, unnerved by this. He had earlier in the day expressed to Charlene Bosma that he, you know, do I want to go with these guys? Should I go? He questioned whether or not, you know, he should go. She said, as we've learned in her testimony, that, of course, you go, silly. You don't want them to steal your truck. So he would tuck his little girl in, put her jammies on, and put her to bed for the very last time. The men would show up just after 9 o'clock. According to Smitch, they started having a small chit-chat. Um, there was questions from Charlene, like, how did you get here? They were kind of puzzled as to how the men got there, and the men explained that they had been dropped off. Tim then circles around the truck. They're talking about the truck, what its, uh, you know, what its um, features are, the fact that it's a diesel truck, what Mr. Millard wanted because it was cheaper to pull his, his um, Jeeps in the Baja racing that he did. And so... From there, they got in the truck. Mr. Smitch tells the jury that Mr. Bosman would get in the passenger seat, Mr. Millard would get in the driver's seat, and Mr. Smitch himself would get in the back seat. They pulled away. They drove out of the driveway, took a right, and the, the Yukon was parked just down the way. They pulled up to the truck, and at that point, Mr. Bosma starts asking, like, why didn't you just pull the truck up? to the house. I think he was puzzled. It sounded like Smitch was saying he was puzzled as to why they were stopping by this Yukon, a vehicle that clearly they had come in, and why they didn't just drive it into the driveway, which may have been a red flag for Mr. Bosma. Nonetheless, Mr. Millard told Mr. Smitch to get out, get into the Yukon, and follow behind them as they go on this so-called test drive. Mr. Smitch said he got into the Yukon. Pedo, a dog owned by Mr. Millard, would be sitting in the passenger seat, That may seem like a small detail, 
but I will explain why that's such an important detail in just a moment. They would drive away. Mr. Smith said they drove for several minutes. All of a sudden, Mr. Millard pulled over rather, I wouldn't say violently, but quickly he pulled over, kind of jerked the vehicle off the road. Pulled over. Mr. Smith pulled up behind him. He didn't understand what was going on. Mr. Millard, he said, got out of the truck, and it appeared that he was putting a gun into a satchel that he was wearing, like an Indiana Jones satchel. At that point, he came up to Mark and said, we're, st- we're, we're taking the truck, I'm taking the truck. And Smith was saying, what is going on? I don't know what's going on. Mr. Millard then took a flashlight out of the back and started walking towards Tim Boss's truck. Smith said he got out of the vehicle, walked up to the truck, and that's when he noticed a bullet hole in the window. And Mr. Bosma's body slumped forward with his face uh, on the um, dashboard of the vehicle, blood everywhere. He said he started freaking out. He said he was scared. He didn't understand what was going on. At that point, he said, you know, we've done a lot of these missions, a lot of these thefts. At no time had they discussed a gun. At no time had they discussed killing anybody. He was he was convinced that they were just simply going to go and steal this truck or at least scope it out and go back and get it later. So he didn't understand. He said Mr. Millard had a look that came over him, something that he had never seen before. He didn't recognize this guy. He just looked kind of crazy. He said he got very forceful, very bossy, telling Mr. Smith what to do, how to do things, where they were going, which was then driving um, towards Brantford and towards the hangar where they were going to incinerate the body. They would, uh, you know, the jury was then shown surveillance, very grainy surveillance video, which they've already seen of the vehicles pulling through in the night, doing a U-turn outside of a Bobcat dealership in Brantford. That is where they would find Tim Bosma's cell phone, which had been dumped out of the truck. So Mr. Millard is driving with Tim Bosma's body in his truck, Mr. Smith from behind with the dog, and they're heading towards now the barn. Why is that important? Because at the Millard Farm, which was right by the hangar, is the Eliminator. It's being held in the barn. According to Mr. Smith, the Eliminator was brought out of the barn, and when he pulled up, he said he could just see that the truck belonging to Mr. Bosma was left wide open, so the passenger door was open, and beside it, was Bosma's bloody body, and he said there was blood everywhere on a sheet. And it was being rolled up. And Mr. Millard opened the hatch to the eliminator and said, put him in. Mr. Smith at that time said, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want this, and I can't do it because I have an injured shoulder. Mr. Millard got quite agitated with that, kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, do something, go shut the gate. Mr. Smith said he shut the gate. He claims he didn't see what happened next, but they would get back in their vehicles, Tim Bosma's truck hauling this particular uh, eliminator, and Mr. Smith would follow behind with presumably Mr. Bosma's body already put into that incinerator, which would then go to the hangar. The hangar is a power source, so there was no power source at the barn, and that's why they couldn't ignite it there. But they did ignite it uh, by 144, at the hangar, um, Mr. Smith said, Dellen Millard, when they got there, um, went to fill his car with gas and told Mr. Smith to start cleaning out the truck to so get rid of all the evidence. So he got an exacto knife, he cut out the carpeting, he cut out uh, the seats, he cut out all the bloody stuff, and then started washing it down with a hose. And he said at that point, Mr. Millard came back and ignited 
the eliminator to which he said that he never saw the flame. Um, and that, and he, we, we really didn't go into huge detail on that, but he certainly said that um, it was uh, at that point, uh, sorry, my two-year-old just walked into that time. Um, we certainly learned the details that Mr. Smith kind of felt anxious about the cleanup and, and uh, at that point, it glossed over. We moved into the next day. Right, and well, you know what? Let's let's yeah. let's leave it there for just now because that's that's sort of the essential of yeah. what has believed. Now, just a couple of very quick things here. Did they say uh, whether the bullet hole that was shown in the window was that the windshield or the side window? Because that could dictate where the shot was coming from. He did not say which window it was. There were certain details that we will likely get in cross examination. Um, that, that kind of detail, and it's the smart observation by you. But again, yeah, he did not say. We know that the front window was cut out at one point because Shane Schlatman, who we've heard so much about, the go-to repairman from Delamalar, was tasked with taking the decals off and a lot of the truck, um, you know, insignia and, and emblems, and also was going to take the VIN number out so that he could trade it, get rid of that one, and take one from Delamalar's red pickup that was just like it. He was going to put that into Tim Bosner's truck, and the plan was to paint Tim Bosner's truck red so that they could hide the fact that it was a different color. So we don't know what direction that bullet came from. Right, because that would would seem right now, just listening to what you just explained, that would seem to me to be, out of everything you said, the, for me, crucial piece of information because if it's the front windshield that has a bullet hole in it it's pretty tough for a, a driver of a car to shoot someone who's in the seat next to you and have the bullet go through the front windshield it would make a lot more sense for it to go out the side if it was someone in the back seat then it makes all the sense in the world that it goes out the front and makes little sense that it goes out the side keep in mind there was a shell casing found in the back seat underneath the back seat of the uh, truck bench where mr smith had said he had been sitting uh, beforehand when they had just left the driveway, but also that a, a, a um, blood spatter expert as well as ballistic expert has already said it doesn't matter where you shoot uh, in a vehicle or in that kind of close proximity because the shell casing can fly anywhere. So if someone were sitting in the front, it could fly to the back and vice versa. So it wouldn't have really mattered. But you're right. Uh, the fact that we didn't have a front window would have, you know, made it very difficult. And there was no side window left in the truck either. So it's hard to say. No one's ever been able to determine exactly which direction the bullet came from. All Mr. Smith said was that when he got up to the truck, he saw a bullet hole. Okay. And then from there, saw Mr. Bosna's body slumped over. Now, this is in, we don't have an actual time. We have not gotten to that yet. Okay. But it's, it's. I think we will also get that kind of detail when we get into the cross-examination of what time it was, how quickly was Tim Bosma shot and killed once he left his driveway in Ancaster. It's believed it would have been about 15 minutes, within 15 minutes. We just have about uh, 30 seconds left, but the one other thing about this, uh, through this trial, everything that I've ever heard or read is that, except for some snickering, it seems, Dellen Millard has been pretty flat, pretty, uh, not much has seemed to phase him as all this evidence has been read out. Did he show any indication of agitation or anything as now the finger of who's shooting is directly pointed at him by his co-accused? Oh yeah, Millard was definitely agitated the entire time. He kept shaking his head and disagreeing with things that was coming out of Millard, or out of Smith's mouth. Now look, he may be having some remorse that he did not get on the stand himself and start the conversation. Um, but essentially, Mr. Smith has the last word, and it will be up to the jury as to what they believe and what they don't. 
um, because there's several pieces of information still that have to come out. You know, the burning of evidence we started to hear about uh, before we shut down for the day. And, of course, the gun, which was found in a toolbox that Della Millard had handed off to one of his friends that ended up with Mr. Smitch. And according to Mr. Smitch, he didn't know he was getting that toolbox. He said he thought he was only getting a bag full of drugs. And when he got this toolbox, it was a gun uh, wrapped in a piece of cloth that he knew. He said that was Dell's gun. I knew that gun. I just didn't think I was getting it. And he would hide that inevitably at his mother's and, according to the Crown, would hide it and bury it in the woods. But that weapon has never been found. Well, we, uh, you did an admirable job of reducing about eight or nine hours of testimony to about 15 minutes, Alex. Um, that's why we have you on here. You did a great job. And uh, listen, really appreciate it tonight. I know you'll be on with Bill in the morning. I know that yeah. this will continue as the day goes on. Tomorrow there'll be all kinds of cross-examination and other uh, uh, other things coming out. But uh, listen, take a few minutes, enjoy your evening, and uh, look forward to hearing from you tomorrow. My pleasure. Thanks so much.